children are about to leave and they've already gone. Let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. Huh? Exodus chapter 6. All right. Well, we'll see how brave we are. Exodus chapter 6 today is our text. And as you look into Exodus chapter 6 and turn there, it's only the second book in the Bible, so it's going to take you a moment to get there. But we start with a question. The question is, do you feel free? I mean, a matter of fact is that we live in the greatest country in this world. And because we do, our country has immense freedoms that other countries do not. We have the freedom of expression. We have the freedom of religion. We have the freedom of speech. We have the freedom of the right to bear arms. And there's many, many more that we have, the freedoms that we enjoy each and every day. But the question remains, are you really free? Or are you somehow really enslaved, in bondage. Now, when I say, ask you if you really have a slave, there's negative connotations. When the world hears the word slave, there's immediately negative connotations associated with that word. Now, I'm not in any way referring to the slave as being a slave to a master, as may have thought about before in previous times, but rather a slave as in maybe having a habit or maybe addicted or obsessed or maybe under the influence of. So again, with the question then, we're asking ourselves as we begin to look at the text today, are you really free? Or somehow are you a slave or in bondage? Because chances are, if we really dug uh, deep about it and begin to think about it long enough, we may recognize that we are enslaved. We are in chains. Maybe we're unaware of it. And maybe we can even ponder, well, what would I be in chains and enslaved to? And the answer, of course, is to our sin. We're slaves to the world, to the sin that we have in our lives, and to the world's prince known as Satan. But the good news is, today as we read the text, to be applied to us our lives, that we can be set free. We can break the chains. Yes, we can be set free. So let's look today in the book of Exodus. Stand with me this morning if you're able to. As we look into God's promised deliverance he's going to give to the Israelites, we're going to also apply to our lives. So we're in Exodus chapter 6. It's only eight verses we're reading today. So in Exodus chapter 6, we find in verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Well, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slave, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you un out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, 
I will give it to you for your possession. I am the Lord, Father. Lord, we come to you this morning, Lord, having read an Old Testament text in Exodus, Lord. And we pray, Lord, today as we read this text, that as we see the promised deliverance for the Israelites, that we would parallel that to our lives in modern day to see how you give us the same promise of deliverance, of liberation, of freedom. Lord, let's recognize that we have been set free only by the blood of Jesus. Let us hear this message today that you give us. It may not be new insight, Lord, but be a reminder that we have been, as believers, set free. Thank you, Lord, for we shall learn and apply today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when you open your book, your Bible today, and leap into Exodus chapter 6, as we have this morning, there is a lot of things that has already transpired in the previous verses and chapters that is worth taking some time to explain. So rather quickly, allow me then to sum up what has happened into the text that we have not read in the previous five chapters. The talks and points then towards the Israelites' deliverance and their promised freedom that they shall receive. So most of you then know the story of Moses. We should quickly recap, because this is all about Moses. You know that when, his, when he was younger, his mother hid him for three months, and then finally when she could not hide him any longer, she placed him in a basket and laid him in the Nile. Soon afterwards, Pharaoh's daughter comes along to bathe in the Nile and finds the baby in the basket and then takes him. She takes him to the palace where she lives with Pharaoh, her father, and then as she begins to live there, she actually has Moses' mother, who is a servant of hers, who is the one arranged to take care of baby Moses. The child brought to the palace. Moses' mother takes care of her. And Pharaoh's daughter is the one who's kind of in charge. But fast forwarding then over the years, as Moses continues to live in the palace and continues to grow into a young man, he eventually observes an Egyptian beating a fellow Hebrew. And then Moses kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. Well, Pharaoh gets upset about this. And when he finds out and heard about it, he tries to kill Moses. But Moses then flees to Midian, where he meets his future wife, Zipporah. Well, then one day, as Moses is tending the sheep for his father's or for his wife's father, Jethro, he has the encounter in Moses chapter 3 with the burning bush where God speaks to him and instructs him to go directly to Pharaoh and demand that his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, should be set free. But Pharaoh, as he goes to him, as Moses goes to Pharaoh, he's not at all interested in letting the people go. He has cheap, free labor from the Israelites, who really are regarded as his slaves, and he makes them make brick for him. But Moses nonetheless demands to Pharaoh to let the people go. Pharaoh's not interested. Moses still makes it a demand to be known. And Pharaoh says the people are not going to go. And he makes it harder actually for the people to make the brick by taking away their supplies, making them get their own stuff to make the brick. It gets more intense as Moses tries to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. So Pharaoh's not letting them go. It only gets harder for his fellow countrymen, which then leads Moses to begin to question God 
on how and when the people will let go. He's not sure if it will happen, if it will happen. So he turns to God and begins to question, how will this happen? Is it going to happen? And that takes us then, as all that's occurred, to chapter 6. And now God responds to Moses. As Moses is questioning God about how and when it will happen to let the people go, God responds to Moses in chapter 6, in verse 1. He says, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he will send them out. If they're strong men, he will drive them out of his land. Notice the verse 1 is written for God's answer to Moses that the people will be set free. It's a promise that God will keep. Notice that God says, I will, and then also emphasize the fact that he said Pharaoh will. He will. God made a promise. He will deliver. But notice in verses 2 through 5 that after God made his promise that he will let the people go, in verses 2 through 4 particularly, he is affirming, yes, I can do that because I am the Lord. I am God. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, of which he made a covenant to give them the land of Canaan. Notice even in verse 5 that God informs Moses that he has heard the groaning of the people, and he has remembered his covenant which means then that he has not forgotten his people and the promise he made to the forefathers. God makes it clear even within the first five verses that he will set his people free, that God will in his own way, in his own timing, it is a promise and he will deliver. But then this emphasized even more in verses 6 through 8. Notice in verses 6 through 8 that once again, God directly tells Moses to go tell the people they will be set free. God personally guarantees that his chosen people, the Israelite nation, will be set free. They will be removed from the burdens of the Egyptians, as mentioned in verses 6 and 7. They will be delivered from the slavery, as mentioned in verse 6. Other translations you may have in front of you may word it slightly different. It may say, bring you out from under the yoke, or free from being slaves, or get rid of the bondage. But whatever translation you prefer, the end result is the same. God will give them their freedom, rid them from their bondage, remove the burden. God will. God will. Notice again, I'm placing emphasis on the fact that God will. And then why shouldn't I be? Look at the text once more. In fact, look at it. You will find, if you look in verses 6 through 8, probably the one to emphasize here, to certainly know that God will, notice that seven times, I've got it bold and underlined, seven times God says, I will. I will. I will. Seven times. You think there's any doubt that he is now? Moses was questioning it. He didn't understand how it will happen. He understood initially the command to go to Pharaoh and say, let the people go. Pharaoh wouldn't do it. So Moses couldn't figure out how it was going to happen. In fact, it got harder for his countrymen. But then God abundantly makes it clear, I will. It's going to happen. I promise you, I will deliver. There should not be any doubt 
in Moses' mind, for anybody reading the text, that God will set his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, free. Seven times the words, I will, in three verses. I always find it interesting that it was seven. It's not five. It's not six. It's not eight. It was seven. I mean, I kind of like it when numbers kind of come together for a hidden part of Revelation in the text. I mean, seven is often used in the Bible, sometimes suggested as the completeness of God and how man is a six and always falling short of God and his expectations. So seven times God said, I will. Essentially, what we find here then within the text that was happening in Exodus chapter 6 is a theme we can find with the book of Exodus. And the theme then is one of redemption. More specifically for the Israelites is redemption, of course, out of slavery, out of the bondage that you're in with Pharaoh. God has clearly told Moses to let the people know they will be set free. Deliverance. Liberation, it will occur. Redemption will happen for the people. And then it shouldn't surprise us as we make a parallel then from what's happened in Exodus chapter 6 to our lives that it's exactly the same for you and for me. I mean, think about our lives and as believers and Christians. I mean, isn't it true in our lives as believers, as Christians, that God blesses us with redemption? He offers us freedom, liberation, and deliverance. I mean, the disciple whom Jesus loved, known as John, wrote the words of our Lord that confirms our deliverance and our freedom. Look with me in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Look in verse 32. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Well, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Notice how verse 32 and verse 36 affirms our deliverance, our freedom. But notice as you go back and look at verse 32 and 36, there's one word, there's one, it hinges on one thing, upon knowing the truth. Well, what is truth? I mean, what is Jesus referring to here by the truth? Well, that's the question we need to answer to make sure we understand so before we answer, recognize then the secular definition of truth, which is in three parts. A, truth is the quality or state of being true. Or secondly, that which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. And then finally, a fact or belief that is accepted as true. I read those last week, and I'm looking at it even this morning, and you're looking at it behind me and seeing the secular definition of truth. I'm thinking, those are meaningless. It's completely, it's junk. It doesn't tell me anything. 
I mean, what is it? The quality or state of being true? What does that mean? To me, it means absolutely nothing. So it doesn't help me. But looking at a secular definition of truth, it doesn't help me at all. And the fact really is then that, unfortunately, today, well, everyone just has their own definition of truth or their own version of truth. It's postmodernism at its best. That what I think is true is true. And what you think is true is also true. It's all relative. And we're left then with really no truth. And then certainly no absolute truth. That's what happens today. What you want to believe is true. I mean, Tom can believe the Cubs are truly the best. And I would strongly disagree, saying he's lost his mind. But if he wants to believe that truth, that's okay. I can believe the truth that maybe the Colts win a Super Bowl. I'm maybe whack thinking that's going to happen. But it's the truth I want to believe. So what I want to believe is true, what he wants to believe is true, what all of us want to believe is true. It just works that way. It's relative truth in modern day. No truth and no absolute truth. A lot of people think then, well, that's just a modern-day phenomenon. It hasn't always been that way. And maybe to some extent it hasn't always been that way. But people questioning truth has been happening for years and years and years. Recall Pilate struggled with truth. After Jesus had been betrayed and led then to the Garden of Gethsemane and then captured there, he was subsequently put on trial with the Sanhedrin. Of course, they find him guilty of blasphemy and then brought him to Pilate for punishment. But Pilate, having dealt with the Jewish leaders in previous occasions, he's not really quick to judge Jesus. In John 18, 29, Pilate asked Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Pharisees, he asked, what accusation do you bring against this man? Of course, Caiaphas and the leaders argue and insist that Jesus has blasphemed the name of God and thereby doing that deserves death. Further, they say Jesus states he is a king which betrays any loyalty he may have to Caesar. So then Pilate, at least a bit curious and maybe very cautious now, directly asked Jesus in verse 33, Are you the king of the Jews? And when Jesus responds in the following verse, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? And he continues in verse 36 and says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. When Pilate hears that, verse 37, he responds, So you say you are a king. Jesus answered him now and said, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who hears of this truth listens to my voice. Of course, Pilate, completely perplexed now, asked in verse 38, What is truth? The fact is that people today are still asking what is truth. And then they make their own version of what they want truth to be. 
but there is truth. We need to understand that people need to hear today. There is truth, and there is absolute truth. And it's exactly what Jesus is referring to. What is absolute truth that Jesus is referring to? In the most simplistic terms, in very simple terms, Jesus is saying that God is truth. Now, Jesus said it slightly different. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the Apostle John knew of this truth. So the question we need to be asking ourselves today is, do we also know this truth? Because the world today doesn't seem to know this truth. But we as believers have certainly got to know this is the truth. Jesus is truth. Remember the words he said in verse 32, chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. That is all true. The truth will set you free. It's Jesus. Now, when it comes to truth written in the Word of God, arguably no more person than John speaks the truth in the Bible. Listen to some of the references. Quite often we see many references, but listen to John speaking the truth to claim to have fellowship with God, and to walk in darkness. John says it's not living according to the truth in 1 John 1.6. To claim sinlessness for the believers to practice self-deceit, and this would be void of the truth as mentioned in 1 John 1.8. The basic message of Christianity, we need to understand, is termed the truth. And believers know the truth and can discern that no lie is of the truth, as John writes and refers to in 1 John 2.4 and 1 John 2.21. 1 John 3.18 refers to the fact that believers are to love in both deed and in truth. Believers are the truth, which no doubt means they belong to Jesus, who is truth, as mentioned in 1 John 3.19. And you turn to 2 John verse 2, you find the truth abides in us and we will be with us forever. And we could go on and on, but maybe that's enough to see that there is truth written in the Word of God and it always refers to Jesus. Now, if we consider Paul, Paul also refers to and talks about truth. But Paul then would link it to salvation. He says salvation includes and is likely synonymous with the truth, with the knowledge of the truth. In 1 Timothy 2.4, God our Savior Desired all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, the truth being Jesus. The scriptures themselves are the word of truth. Our second Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And I like how Paul maybe kind of summarizes it all in 1 Timothy 4.3. And 6.5 is saying the church, our church, the church, the church of the living God is both the pillar and ground of truth. Listen, it's just that simple. If we don't promote the fact that there is absolute truth, then it never will matter. It's up to us as believers. It's up to us as a church body together to recognize that we must be the pillar of truth. To make Jesus known is the absolute truth. And truth then is a theme of the Bible. There is certainly absolute truth. 
And the word of God, his son Jesus, is the truth, and we must make this fact known. So again, it should be no surprise for any of us this morning to learn that this truth of Jesus sets us free. That he offers every one of us, every person indeed, he offers the freedom, the liberation, and the deliverance. So many people are looking to be set free, but yet are in bondage. They're even recognizing that they are. But Jesus and Jesus alone really can deliver and liberate and free. It is Jesus. He is the truth, the way, and the life. And indeed, no one comes to the Father. No one should see the heavenly realm except through Jesus. Now, as we say that and recognize that, let us also recognize this. That there yet then is another seeking to keep us in slavery to the bondage and the sin of the world. Of course, we know it's the prince of the world, Satan, our adversary, our enemy. The enemy, Satan himself. Remember, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for his next victim to devour. I mean, it's fact, and although you may not see him literally, that Satan himself goes to and fro among the earth, trying his very best to convince even you as believers even Christians, tries to convince them that they are not free. What does the enemy try to tell us about our freedom, about our promise of deliverance and salvation? He tries to tell us, you're not good enough for that. Jesus really didn't die for you. You're not worthy. You're not important enough. He tries his very best to convince all people, even Christians today, he tries to convince them they're not worthy, they're not important. Jesus didn't die for you. There's no truth in that. So in essence, what we see then, unfortunately today, is that Satan has a grip upon many people in the world today. And make no mistake, he's trying his very best to keep you enslaved. He's literally trying to chain you up to keep you within his grip. It's interesting that contemporary Christian music artist Chris Tomlin added to the classic song Amazing Grace the reference to how we are in chains. If you know the song Amazing Grace, Chris Tomlin added, my chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns, an ending love, amazing grace. But he said, my chains are gone. The chains are only gone by the fact that Jesus has set us free and broke those chains. And Tomlin's song certainly emphasizes how we can be in chains, enslaved to habitual temptations and sin that is introduced by our enemy to entrap us and to keep us within those chains. Now, while that is just a reality and certainly can be bad news, the good news is that, yes, we're set free, like the Israelites are going to be set free by Jesus. Jesus is the truth. He can set you free. But also notice, secondly, that Satan then, he's not done. He will tempt you with rosy, comfortable, and enriching environments to keep you enslaved. Now, as we say that, we must recognize this, first and foremost. That in our lives, we're not going to be doing maybe the hard time that the Israelites are facing. I mean, I've worked in a chicken plant for 25 years, and I don't wish that anybody would ever do that. Okay? 
it's not hard labor, but it's menial stuff, and it's just stuff I don't want. It's just petty stuff. But the Israelites were making bricks. Who wants to go out and make bricks today? To me, that would be if I had to go out and make a bunch of bricks like the Israelites are doing. I think we think that'd be hard labor. Teenagers today don't worry. They don't want to work at all. People today don't want a job. There's jobs available. They think they're going to be having the hard labor. There's no such thing really as hard labor anymore in the way the Israelites are making bricks. But we're not going to be having that hard labor. We're not going to have that little bit happening to keep us enslaved like literally what's happening to the Israelites. But yet the fact is that we're going to be in bondage if we fall to his temptation. That's the adversary's ploy to keep you in an environment where it's not hard times, but it's rosy, it's comfortable, it's enriching. It's part of his technique, part of his tactic to make you think that you're free when you're really not, when he's got you trapped. And he'll do anything he possibly can to keep you there. The best illustration I can think of to be able to tell you how you can be enslaved in that way, to be rosy and comfortable and think you're free but you're not, is from the movie God's Not Dead. In the movie God's Not Dead, there happens to be a young man who seems to be tremendously successful. His mother is in a nursing home suffering from dementia. And he thinks because he has cursed God and has left God and did everything on his own, that is why he is so successful. Whereas his mother, who is loyal to God, faithful to God, has nothing but dementia for her love and faithfulness to God. So he goes finally for a visit to the nursing home, thinking that he's high and mighty and all that kind of stuff, and he's so much better than his mother, and he's in all this stuff on his own, and he's had this rosy, comfortable, enriching life that he has done. And so the mother tells him this. Sometimes the devil allows people to live a life free of trouble because he doesn't want them turning to God. His sin is like a jail cell, except it's all nice and comfy. And there doesn't seem to be any need to leave. The door is wide open. Till one day time runs out. The cell door slams shut. And suddenly it's too late. The son didn't understand. But we can. We can recognize the fact that Satan will do his very best to make something, a temptation in your life, to feel very comfortable, very rosy, wonderful. And it'll just kind of leave that jail cell open for us to go back and forth where he still keeps us in chains and slave to that temptation. We don't need to get too comfortable into whatever sin we may partake in. We don't need to see this as an open-door prison in which we're going in and out of. As Satan is doing his very best to trap you. And sometimes we fall to that trap, which means we're no longer free. But remember that God has set you free through his son, Jesus. The most important truth you need to hear this morning is that Jesus accepts you as you are. He has come to rescue you. He has come to set you free, to break the chains, to release you from the grip that Satan wants to have upon you, from the bondage he's trying to put you in. In the verses today in Exodus chapter 6, we examine that 
the Israelites were in having a hard time of making brick. They were enslaved to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. But God kept his promise and will set the people free. And he keeps the same promise with you and with me. If you take time later to read the finished chapter 6, chapter 6 of Exodus, you'll observe that God did indeed free them from slavery. He became their God, and he accepted them as his people, and eventually led them to the promised land. So maybe the point then of looking at Exodus chapter 6 in parallel now to our lives is the fact that when the Hebrews were rescued from slavery, when it all happened, as we see unfolding in chapter 6, the Hebrews then portrayed the liberation, the deliverance, the freedom, and the salvation for all of us. God led them to freedom. And he set them free. We then also are set free from the bondage of our enemy. Only through Jesus Christ. And when God redeems us from our sin, he delivers us. He accepts us and becomes our God. Then as we lead to follow him, as he leads begin to follow him, we can be broken from the chains. Those chains can be broke today. You can be set free, but only with the blood of Jesus. Be set free today. Recognize that you have been set free with the blood of Jesus. Father, Lord, we thank you today for this message, the reminder that we receive the fact that we have freedom. We've been promised freedom, and we are free. Satan will do his very best to entrap us. He'll do his very best, Lord, to try to keep us in bondage. But we knew, we know through the power of blood of Jesus that we can be set free. I pray for all of us today to recognize, Lord, that we have the freedom that's been guaranteed, that's been promised to us by the blood that was shed on that cross. Let us leave here today, Lord being free from the sin in our lives. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.